Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined by Brian Moses. How you doing, Brian? Not too bad. Awesome. Yeah, I was just speaking off there, just saying thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, just for background for the actual audience. So I've been really interested probably about the last couple of months, just looking into maybe kind of upgrading my home server setup. Uh, at the moment, I've got a very crooked, slow, atom-based net top uh, with an old Drobo hooked up to it. And that's kind of you know, dealing with all my media set, set up, my Plex set up and things like that. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be, you know, maybe it'd be time for me to maybe invest and actually look properly into hardware and stuff. Kind of transitioned over from being a custom PC builder uh, back when I was like teenager to now a Mac guy. So really, we don't get to deal with any of the fun hardware stuff. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of foraying back into that. And one of the th- one of the blogs actually that came up really highly was yours, Brian. And I've got to say, you p- pump out some amazing material. Thank you. Thank you very much. I thought it'd be really great to have you on the show and kind of to kind of demystify a lot of this stuff because I think uh, primarily our audience on this show is very much with software people and I think there's a whole other world of the hardware and just you know deciding on hardware and and it's all really exciting interesting stuff and like I said you know just a minute ago like your blog you know you kind of go through these bits and and you really do lay it out really well like your decision making and thought processes and what you choose um, I'm just wondering kind of like what got you into computers and like in particular like NAS builds well, I got I got into computers ages ago uh, when my when my folks raided my college fund to buy an Apple IIe. So my PC love goes you know way back into the in the early '80s. But in particular, the the network attached storage builds that came up. Uh, this has got to be about five or six years ago. I decided that you know we had enough computers here at the house that I wanted to start backing everything up locally. And I was going to do that, you know, just by throwing together a little NAS box. And I went out on Google and, you know, punched in DIY NAS. And all the search results were, they were frustrating to read. They were forum posts that were, you know, 18 pages in. And none of it was very helpful. And I'd had a blog at the time, but I wasn't doing very much with it. And my buddy Pat said, well, if you're frustrated with the with the search results and you can't find the content that you're looking for, why don't you write what you're looking for? And that's and that's what I did. And what we found is on Google, I went almost straight up to the top of the search results. And as a result, you know, I've I've started doing these on a on a yearly basis. I completely agree with you, what you're saying there, because until I found your blog, um, a lot of it is kind of going through forums and you may find a nice snippet, the interesting bit nugget out of like a forum post thread that, you know, goes way back, but it doesn't really, you know, there's no kind of story to it. There's like maybe bits and bobs. You're looking for a CPU, so you're going to that forum and you're going that post there and then you have to go and search for other bits. But as I say, yours kind of congregates all that and aggregates it all and kind of into a nice, you know, story about building one as opposed to foraying out. Have you always been into like the custom PC builds and things like that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I guess, I guess a couple of years ago I was in a a laptop phase. So you know, it's it's like a it's like the MacBook or the Apple stuff. You don't you don't get to do a whole lot with the hardware. You buy a laptop. That's what it is until you get a different laptop. But yeah, I mean, I've been building PCs. I mean, since high school, and that's a couple decades ago. And you're still loving it, then, is it? Would you ever go back to the laptop again? Do you think? 
I have a I have a laptop. I have a I I have a laptop that I like a lot. A little tiny light thing that I carry around. But yeah, I think I'll probably always have a you know a custom PC at my desk. You mentioned that you know you blog a lot and you so you, you do this yearly uh, NAS giveaway. And I'm just wondering, kind of like what what was the idea behind that? Is it for your learning? Is it just to be nice? You know, to give it away free? What, what's kind of your thinking behind that? Well, the the second time I did the the annual. DIY NAS blog. You know, the first time I did it, it was, hey, here's what I built. This is why I built it. And then it got real popular. And then, you know, because it's PC hardware, it got to be obsolete within a year or it felt obsolete. You know, I had bought, I had bought older hardware when I put it together and people were asking, I said, hey, what would you do if you were going to do it again? And I said, okay, well, here's what I would do if I had to do it over again. And I gave everybody a list of parts. And then to my embarrassment, those parts didn't work together very well. I mean, there was, there was, I can't remember if it was the memory, there was something. It was, it was really embarrassing. I was, I was ashamed that, that that happened. Um, and after that, I said, well, you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm just going to build this hardware every time. And then I realized, well, I'm going to have a new NAS, you know, at least once a year. And I actually do a, a different, more economy friendly NAS build suggestion also. So I do, I do two different NAS builds a year, and I just my storage needs aren't increasing that much that I can justify upgrading my NAS that frequently. So I I figured I would just do an experiment and see how you know a little giveaway raffle would work for driving traffic to my blog, and it's worked out really well to the point where it's a really good marketing tool. So I I like being able to build it. I have it here, and then giving it away to the readers is is a fun thing to do. Absolutely. And you, you've got like a, it's like a time lapse and also the actual version of you on YouTube actually building it and things. And I think it allows people to see kind of who don't really do much you know, PC builds or server builds and things, how this all get fits together and provides them with a, a base to actually work from. Yeah. You know, so you've got your desktop builds and then your, your gaming builds and rigs like that. And then you've got your server. And I'm just thinking, what are the key differences then between them when you're, when you're making the decisions on hardware? The driving factor that I always try and put into it is, you know, what's your what's your bang for your buck is going to be? What's what's the most cost effective way to get your server put together? And I guess the real secret in that is kind of understanding your own needs. And once I mean, once you're able to, you know, really refine what it is that you want, going out and finding hardware that matches up with that, you can save it a ton of money. So you know, with regards to how I picked out my particular hardware, I had come across. Well, I guess I'm I'm getting off on a tangent a little bit. I've got I've got two servers here. I've got my network attached storage box, and then I also have my little home lab machine. Um, and the home lab no, by no means little. <laughs> yeah, no, it's well, it's it's not little at all. And this is this is where I was going with cost effective. I wound up finding an article somebody else's blog post somewhere saying that you could get these, you know, formerly top of the line Xeon CPUs. They're older. I mean, they're, they're two or three versions old, but they're, they're fantastic little CPUs. And there's a ton of dual, you know, dual socket motherboards that you can put them in for, I mean, you could get the CPUs used for like 40 to $50 each. And so I, I saw that article and I said, well, that just sounds, that sounds neat. I want to build I want to build a box like that. And that's what that's how I wound up doing. And it wound up being, I mean, extremely cost effective for the number of the number of cores, sixteen total. 
I paid like eighty dollars in CPUs. It's pretty incredible. So kind of like breaking out then. So looking at these considerations and stuff, and looking at each of the individual pieces, it'd be really interesting to see maybe in both your setups where you've got your home lab and also then in the actual NAS builds that you do. You know the driving factors because what it feels like is it is case by case basis, and that maybe that's probably one of the nicest things about it is that you have a different story for each build. You know, there's different requirements. Like I suppose in a NAS build, you know, you're looking for as much storage, as much SATA ports as you can, as opposed to maybe like you know in a performance build where you're looking for a fact of maybe having dual socket seats. CPU usage and things like that. Yeah. In the NAS build that you've currently made, you actually used an integrated CPU. So I was just wondering, what was the reasoning behind that? So, yeah, when I built my very first NAS, what I wanted to do was build something that was efficiently on, it's a fit power efficient, and then also something that was small, like a, a, as small a footprint as I possibly can, because I'm putting it here, you know, within arm's reach at my desk, and my desk is always... A mess. I mean, it, I would like it all to be infinitely cleaner, and I'd like the computers to take up as little room as possible. And my driving factor on the NAS builds has always been to find, you know, a low power, preferably passively cooled CPU. And it just so happens that all of those CPUs anymore are integrated into the motherboard. And that's that's how I went that route. If there was a low power CPU that you know fit in your regular CPU socket I probably would be considering it also I like I I like the integrated motherboards and you know in all honesty when it comes time to upgrade your your CPU you're probably going to wind up moving up to a newer generation CPU which is going to require a different socket anyways so chances are you're not going to get to do the little drop in place CPU that goes in the motherboard that you already have so the con of, you know, an integrated CPU is that it is what it is. If you want to upgrade the CPU, you wind up upgrading the motherboard. But I'd almost argue that that's going to be the case nine times out of ten. It's that whole thing of upgrading or like preparing for an upgrade that you may never do. Yeah. Uh, and it's the fact, as you say, like, and, and I guess another pro with being integrated is it smaller size. I guess that they can, you know, put it onto the chip easier, better, and it saves space in that way as well. Yeah. And like you mentioned it is passively cooled. What, what do you mean by that? There's a heat sink and there's no fan. So that was my big fans fail and fans make noise. So I wanted it to be I wanted it to be quiet also. And if there's no CPU fan, that's just one you know, there's a few decibels right there that it's not gonna be constantly generating. So in both your builds then, was it a requirement to have this, the sound to be as, as minimal as possible, you know, fan use, or was it mainly just specific on the NAS side? Yeah, that would be mostly on the NAS side. Those, Z, those Xeon CPUs in that home lab server, they're going to require, you know, actual real CPU cooling. There's a, there's a couple great big CPU coolers in that, in that box. Have you ever looked into like water cooling? I have. Um, I think there's a lot of probably marketing and waste in all of the pc cooling the 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 concept of water cooling i think is really cool i think it's neat that people do it i think that it's neat that people can use it to overclock their cpus to ridiculous levels i would rather spend that money that you know that that water cooling setup would require and just buy faster hardware sooner or at the time that i bought it that's just my thoughts Wow, that's interesting. And and that's, there's another thing that was interesting about the motherboard that you picked for the NAS uh, this time around as well. And it was it it's IPMI. Yeah, that. I'm just wondering what what is IPMI? IPMI. I can't remember what it's not. It's not like a TCP/IP, but it's a. That's what I think. It's basically ma it's a management interface over IP. Uh, 
you can punch, you know, when you boot up the motherboard, as soon as, well, it doesn't have to boot up. It's it's working all the time. You can just punch in the IP in your browser and you get a little management interface for the motherboard. You can power it on or off. You can update the BIOS. You can boot it up, go into the BIOS settings, make changes. All without having to plug in a monitor or anything like that, yeah, I'm guessing. Literally, the only thing that I plugged a monitor in for this year was to find out what the IP was of that interface. And then I did I did all of the rest of the setup of the BIOS. I did all the burn-in testing. I did all of that through my web browser at my desktop PC. It was pretty cool. I can imagine, yeah, that must be a really nice win to be able to not have to worry about setting out, especially with a NAS where you do just want it to be headless and on its own and out the way. Exactly. And yeah, so you go from the motherboards and I suppose the motherboards, there's many different sizes of motherboard as well. And I'm guessing like with the NAS one, then it was the idea to be very small. And then what about, how, what size did you go for then with your actual home uh, lab build? My home lab build is a full ATX motherboard. There just weren't, there aren't any mini ITX dual Xeon motherboards. I don't know if it's a lack of space or just these motherboards go into great big server cases most of the time anyways, so that it doesn't, size isn't a consideration for a server rack like it might be a consideration for Brian's desk space. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you mentioned that it's actually dual CPU then. So typically in all our hardware now, like we know cores and, and you know, we know cores and threads and we think, oh yeah, I've got a four core CPU. But you're, when you're talking about cores and then you're talking about CPU, you're talking about actually having two separate CPUs on the same motherboard. Yeah, there are two CPUs on that motherboard, each of which have eight cores. That must, yeah, that is insane. Does it work in parallel? Is it, is it a similar build to how you, the cores would be running in just a single CPU? Yeah. And that they'll be shared? Can you split between them? I think all of that happens behind the scenes by the the motherboard's architecture or the operating system that handles that. Cool. So from that then, we've got the motherboard, and now it's the actual RAM. And one thing that I've been noticing on my kind of exploration into looking into CPUs and and for servers and stuff is the difference between ECC RAM and non-ECC RAM. And I'm just wondering, could you maybe explain what the kind of differences are and the pros and cons of each? Well, ECC RAM... It used to be that all RAM was ECC RAM. There's an extra, there's a tenth chip on it that does parity checking and basically making sure that what's in the memory is what's supposed to be in there. Just about all of your enterprise-grade hardware is going to have ECC RAM in it. Well, there are two cons on ECC RAM, and that's going to be cost. The RAM itself, you know, there's a tenth chip on it. So the RAM itself is usually about 10% more expensive. Where the, the sneaky costs come in are, you know, the motherboards that support it. I mean, you're talking enterprise-grade hardware, so you're talking enterprise-grade price tags. Non-ECC RAM doesn't have that 10th chip. It's a little bit, it's a little bit cheaper. Um, it's not doing that error checking and correcting, so it's also a little bit, a little bit faster. I don't think anybody would really notice it, but a benchmark would show it. And if you have one of those bit flips, that's just what's going to happen. That's what's going to get, you know, whatever whatever the CPU is doing at that time with that memory, that's that's what's going to get used. So your NAS worst case scenario is it happens to be writing a, a key piece of file system data, then a bit flips and you lose a whole storage array or something like that. There is, especially within the free NAS community, there is a a little bit of zealotry going on with ECC. I am not the hugest proponent of one or the other. I think I think that using non-ECC RAM is absolutely fine. I think that, you know, for 
all of us home users, it's not going to make a lick of difference to us. But there are there are people within the free NAS community and uh, and other places that say, you know, you can't have enterprise grade stuff without ECC RAM. And I guess I guess my position on all of it would be that ECC RAM is is clearly the better choice. It's it's safer. You get you give up a little bit in performance and you give up a lot in cost. But what you get is the best the best technology and RAM that you can. My position is that, you know, the cost, the premium that you get doesn't justify, quantify those those benefits. It just, it seems a bit out of whack. I'd rather, if you're worried about losing all of your NAS data, I would, ra- I would rather say, well, use some of that money that you would have spent on ECC hardware and come up with an off-site, an off-site backup solution. Because one of the things that that ECC RAM's not going to protect you from is yourself. If you go and you delete all of your files, ECC RAM's not going to save you from that. And maybe instead of spending money on ECC RAM, you could also spend money on something that'll protect you from that one in a trillion bit flip and also maybe protect you from yourself. You know, an offsite, you know, some cloud storage or even an external hard drive that you give to a buddy and he gives you his and you keep a copy of your backup data off-site somewhere. That's a, I think that's an, an incredibly more effective way to spend those same dollars. Because I suppose that the thing is, obviously, is it's the whole geographical problem of, well, it's fine that you've got this ECC RAM, but then what happens if the actual location that your hard drives are based suddenly goes up in flames or something, sadly, and you've lost everything anyway. Exactly. So it, it is that kind of working out what is the best bang for your buck. And so from that then, so we've, we then go into the CPUs. And, and actually, this was one of my first questions. Like when I first got back into it, I was like, okay, well, back in the day, it was Intel versus AMD. Still is, I suppose. But, you know, Intel has really kind of won out. Um, and I'm, I'm right in thinking that Intel has dominating now the market. Yeah, and AMD has been quiet until recently. AMD just released a new set of CPUs and they look they look really interesting and they're a good they seem to be a good cost for a good cost for performance. But yeah, in the last in the last few years and certainly since I started building NAS machines, it's been it's been all Intel. Wow. Uh, I mean, it was sad because they were like the leaders in like 64-bit architecture, weren't they, at the beginning? Crazy to think. And then they just got overthrown. And yeah, so so from that then, you've got the Intel and the Intel i-series versus the Xeons. There was a lot, again, when I was starting to look online, and there's a lot of conjecture with this as well, where people are saying, hey, even in like, you're better off even in desktop hardware using a Xeon in some instances and stuff like that. And I'm just wondering, what, what are the key differences then for someone who's just looking at these for, you know, they want to look into, I mean, they assume maybe that a server, you want a Xeon then, or is, is, is a certain i, you know, an i-series chip good enough? And in all of this, I would say cost, your cost per performance is what, is what should be driving you. Any brand new Xeon chip, they're going to be really expensive, depending on your, your i-series CPU. Some of those are also going to be expensive. I don't have I don't have a real preference towards either, other than you know measuring out measuring out what it is that you think you need for network attached storage. I mean, it's that's a that's a fancy file server. It's not going to need incredibly powerful processing capability. I mean, it's, you don't need a whole a, a ton of CPU. Um, but what most people are doing are they might want to store a bunch of files and host a a Plex instance. Well, you know, transcoding video requires CPU. I mean, you really got to kind of measure what, what am I going to be doing with this? 
And with that then, so how do you work out that? So say, you know, you've got like an idea in mind of like the say you want to be able to do transcoding and things like that. And you've what type of websites or benchmarks do you kind of rely heavily on for that kind of decision? So with, with text specifically, you can punch in how much CPU do I need, and they'll give you a equivalent score from the Passmark website. So with that, then also is the the debate from more cores versus clock speed. And Moore's law happened, and we were we eventually were not you know kind of we've slowed down the ability per you know per CPU per core you know to be able to get as much out of them as possible. And now we're kind of expanding horizontally instead of vertically. Am I right in thinking different workloads, different processes require different you know different concepts of like more cores versus clock speed? And like, is it you know very much based on the kind of your use case? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to be your use case that drives whether you need more cores versus a higher clock speed. You know, something like video transcoding, I think that's that's single-threaded, so you're going to want a faster core. Now, if you're doing multiple streams, that might wind up getting farmed out to each core. You know, gaming, you know, obviously it requires a faster core. It's it's single-threaded. You know, serving up files to a bunch of different users or a bunch of different processes, that's going to be, you know, multiple cores that you're going to, you're going to be more interested in. Brilliant. And from that, then you've got, we've got the motherboard, we've got the RAM, we've got the CPU, uh, and then it's the storage. And as this is, you know, obviously where the NAS comes in, and this is really what we want. This, you know, one thing obviously with the Drobo, which kind of helped me and, and got me away from the fact that I'm to worry about it too much, was the concept of what they have is beyond RAID. Uh, and really, it's like a RAID setup, which you don't really have to worry about too much. You know, with that, then obviously you lose, you know, a lot of control out of it. And I'm just wondering what actually then is RAID? And the, and there's many different forms of it. So it'd be really great maybe if we could go into a couple of those as well. RAID is, it stands for Redundant Array of Inexpensive, or sometimes people say independent, disks. So essentially what it's doing is it's taking a bunch of hard drives and then treating them all as one i mean to the user it's presented as a single drive effectively but then within that drive the data is written to the disks differently and in different ways so that you have your data spread across numerous drives so depending on how it's set up you could survive a drive failure or two or more in order and still not lose any data whatsoever there are and in addition to the redundancy aspects of that, then the there's an advantage in read and write speeds in that you've got different parts of data on different disks and you can access that, you know, in parallel together a little bit faster than if all of that data was all on a single disk and it, it had to go find all of that data to present it back to the to the CPU. I think your your most popular forms of RAID are probably gonna be RAID RAID zero, you hear a lot about. That's that's striping. That's uh, that's really fast, but it's really dangerous because there's no there's no redundancy. So if you have a a four drive array and you have a you have a movie file, that movie is split up between those four different discs, and reading and writing to it is as fast as it, I mean it's it's much faster than just one single disc. But losing any one of those discs at all means you've lost the file. I mean you've lost the entire array. Usually you don't see a whole lot of people do this. I did this once in a home computer of mine years ago, and I can't remember if I ever had a drive fail, and it wound up biting me in, in the butt. I don't think that it did, but it should have. It was a 
It was a bad. It was a bad idea. RAID one is mirroring. So if you had two drives in a RAID one array, everything that you wrote to one drive would be also written to the other, which meant that you could, you know, literally go in there and unplug a drive, and you wouldn't lose any bit of data. Another common one is zero plus RAID zero plus one, which is combining both of those. So you do RAID zero plus one across four disks, where you're. I'm going to get this backwards. I'm sure of it. Where you're either you're striping two drives and then you're mirroring that to another set of two drives. So then you could lose one of those drives and be okay and repair the array. But if you lost, you could lose two, but it would have to be the perfect two. So if you lost, if you lost the wrong two, you'd lose the whole array. And then there are more complex versions of RAID, which are safer and probably a, a much better way to go for a NAS build these days. RAID 5 effectively puts all of your data across four of the drives and there's a you can survive up to one drive failure so depending on the size of your array so if it's if you have seven drives in there you could lose one of those seven drives and be okay so your data is written in two places on at least two of the disks all of the time if you do a little bit of googling on raid 5 there there are some articles out there about how raid 5 is is dead and that there's some there's some scary we're getting to the size of drives now where it's almost certain that you're going to have a problem rebuilding that array and that might result in data loss. Um, I think some people still still use RAID 5. I'm kind of the NAS guy. I'll say I think RAID 5 is a bad idea and I, I probably wouldn't suggest it. My favorite is actually RAID 6, which is... A a lot like RAID 5, except you have two drives worth of parity. So if you have six drives, you could lose two of those drives before you were in real danger. And that kind of just gives you a nicer, warmer, and fuzzier feeling about your data. And am I, am I right in thinking that? Because it feels that the so say in the cases of like you've got RAID 5, then RAID 6, is RAID 6 maybe subtly less performant than RAID 5 because of the fact it has to be written to two disks? I would bet you that if you looked at the benchmarks that, that RAID 6 is, you know, you pay for performance with more redundancy. I think that's probably a pretty good rule of thumb for all of all of computing. The safer it is, the slower it goes. But the less time you're going to be crying after the fact where uh, you've got exactly. everything. Yeah, this is, this is a good point. <laughs> so, so you've got then RAID 6 and, and you mentioned ZFS. What exactly then is ZFS? So ZFS is the file system... ZFS is a file system, and it's the file system behind FreeNAS. It is a copy-on-write file system, which means you know you write your data to your di- you write your data to your to your storage once, and then the next time you write it again, it reads it all from disk and it writes it with your modifications somewhere else, and then it checks what you just wrote to disk against the original, and it does a checksum to see if it's still still valid, and then depending on other factors like redundancy, it can also correct for anything that goes wrong because you do have what happens on disks that's called bit rot. I mean, eventually drives just, they go bad, they stop performing, and the data that's on the on the drive gets corrupted. And what, what ZFS does that's really cool is it can check some of that and it can correct, you know, based off of your par- your parity data, it can correct some of those errors and protect your data and another benefit of ZFS is because it's copy on write, it's keeping older versions of your files around, 
not directly accessible, but it's got features to do snapshots of that data without consuming a whole lot of of your storage in the process. That's a really neat feature that saved me on a few times because I've done something silly accidentally. You know, I've I've deleted files. Yeah, I want, oh shoot, I didn't mean to do that. I need to I need to go back. And you know, you just go into you know, if you've got them set up to take snapshots, you just go into a snapshot and restore that snapshot and you've got that file back, you know, the way it was before you goofed it up. That's cool. So uh, would the RAID and then ZFS be, obviously they're very good companions, but can they be used on their own? Can you use RAID without ZFS? There are probably any number of ways to implement RAID without ZFS. There are ways to do, there are like hardware hardware controllers that do that do the raid on on the hardware above whatever the operating system does that they call it fake raid you know where they build software raid into motherboards and then there's software raid which which ZFS does one of the things that the ZFS tells you not to do is to use hardware raid and ZFS at the same time because you can affect you can affect it negatively so yeah with with ZFS, you leave all of the redundancy up to ZFS. It manages all of it, which I find preferable. Um, I think especially for, you know, the home DIY NAS builder person, you know, if you bought a hardware RAID controller and your hardware RAID controller failed, then you very likely need to find that exact same RAID card to replace it. Um, they're, real, they're real particular. Whereas software RAID, you kind of get rid of that abstraction and you just throw whatever at it and the software is already handling all of it. Now there's a probably a performance hit to that, you know, having the CPU doing effectively what a heart what the hardware was doing before. But I think the the other benefits of ZFS far outweigh, you know, what you're giving up in performance on a on an actual hardware RAID controller. Oh, that's interesting. And then so from there then we've got the storage and we've got the CPU, RAM and motherboard. Uh, and then it's actually put where where do we put all this stuff? It's the actual casing around it, and that's another big you know consideration that you need to think of if you're th- looking into making yep. a server. Got the concept of racks and then towers, and then also you know in the case of maybe your NAS, you've got a smaller kind of tower based sized box. And I'm just wondering what's your experience with all these? Like, have you ever gone down the rack route and had like a cool serverish in quotes look definitely serverish looking you know boxes and things like that? No, I don't. The uh, I can't remember what job it was that I was working at. But, you know, one of my very first IT jobs, I wound up working in a place and the, one of the server admins had a rack mount server that he he was diagnosing or getting getting spun up to put into the rack. And he turned it on. And from across the room, it sounded like a jet engine taking off. And that is, I mean, that is literally what a lot of that hardware sounds. It's not designed to be quiet. It's not designed to, you know, take up as little room as possible. They're very... They're dense, but they're arranged vertically. A server or server rack is 19 inches wide, and sometimes they're up to about, you know, three feet deep. So, you know, that's about the size of a closet that you would have to dedicate in floor space-wise. My wife would never, she'd never go for that. I'd never even try to subject her to the noise and the space of an actual server rack machine. Uh, I'm I'm very much a, a proponent for find a 
as compact a case as possible and tuck it away somewhere that you don't have to see it. And hopefully you have something like IPMI so you never have to go and actually touch it. Cool. And and I suppose so both your builds then are are tower-based. They're both, I guess, what you would call desktop cases, you know, kind of consumer designed, designed to be sitting on your desk next to you from there actually powering all this and and really with a server then you go from being a commodity home use laptop or sorry home use pc you know desktop which is on maybe probably a couple of hours a day you know whatever usage you have to really now it's 24 7 always on technology and dealing with powering that and then cooling that um what, what are the kind of key considerations with that that's one of the reasons that I like the passively cooled low power CPUs. You know, since it's on 24 seven, you know, your power consumption is a sneaky cost. I've done the math a, a couple times and it usually works out, you know, over the long haul that, you know, you pay a premium for low power passively cooled hardware, but that premium winds up repaying itself over the lifespan of, you know, your utility costs. And that especially I live somewhere where our utility costs are extremely low. Uh, other places in the world, your utility costs are not not nearly as low as ours, and that comes into much a, a much bigger deciding factor. For uh, I mean, the actual choosing of of power supplies, I don't put a whole lot of effort into that. Um, on the NAS builds, you know, you've you've got an idea from you know your CPU's TDP, your the wattage that assigned to the TDP. It's not quite equivalent to power consumption but it's pretty close and then usually i i throw in 10 or 15 watts per hard drive in the machine and then i look for a power supply that that'll work under that particular wattage you know if you had grandiose schemes to add more and more hard drives down the road i would probably recommend that you size your power supply at the beginning to your maximum number of drives in the future in the blog post that you've posted for your latest one that you actually already knew what PSU you were going to use based on the fact that it fit well into the case that you wanted. So it's that kind of working out exactly where, you know, case build, like what size it needs to be and things like that is a big consideration. Yeah, exactly. The case the case that I picked, that the DS380, uses a, an SFX power supply. And what I found in buying those is that different people have different interpretations of that standard. So I had bought... On the in 2015, I had bought the same case, and I wound up going through a couple different power supplies that said they would fit, but then didn't wind up fitting. And going with the particular power supply that I chose this year, I knew in advance that it would work with that case. Being a standard, you would have hoped there would have been a standard yeah. size. Uh, and with that, then the operating system. You mentioned FreeNAS before, actually, and that's a, a BSD operating system and then obviously you've got linux and i'm just wondering do you mind like maybe explaining kind of the differences between bsd versus linux and kind of the decisions behind using something like freenas over just like an ubuntu server install the entire reason that i picked freenas was because of its its web user interface for managing the server i am not by any stretch of the imagination an expert on on either bsd or linux in any in any form or fashion i've been almost strictly a, a Windows guy. And because of that is why I, is why I picked FreeNAS. Looking at the web browser interface and stuff, it feels like a really nice environment to work in um, and to like manage your server from. It is. It's very, it's very nice. In fact, everything that I describe in the blog is all done from the user interface, except for, you know, the initial setup. You know, you press enter a couple 
you punch that into a browser and everything from that point on gets done through there. You mentioned there the IPs then, so the networking. Going through your blog, so I started off looking at networking here and then like some of your other ex, you know, experiments that you've been doing uh, with your faster than gigabit networks and stuff like that. And I've got to say, yes, they are very, very interesting technologies you've been playing with. What kind of networking thing, especially in NASA's, do you, you know, pay close attention to? I am pretty much a networking neophyte. I don't know very much about it other than, you know, plug your computer into your, your little router and hopefully, you know, you get you get a connection between the two. That was part of my interest in building out my faster than gigabit network. I wound up going to eBay and looking around for inexpensive gigabit or faster network equipment that was secondhand to see if I could get a 10 gigabit link between, you know, between my primary desktop and the NAS. I had some luck. There's, there's inexpensive stuff, you know, I guess trending towards obsolescence, but it works just fine. And it's, it wound up being really inexpensive. I don't really think that most, that most people need it. Your gigabit network, that's going to be just about as fast as your average consumer hard drive. It'll be able to fully utilize that that gigabit link, and you're going to get performance as you would out of a physical hard drive. Um, I don't necessarily think that anybody else needs to do it, but it's certainly something to do that you can go to work and you can brag about and impress your IT guys. Oh, absolutely. With your actual server setups and stuff, one of the interesting things you do after you've actually built it and you've booted up and everything is stress testing the hardware. I'm just wondering kind of what software and tools do you use to do such a thing? The first thing I usually do is I use Memtest to test a RAM. Um, and basically what it does is it writes patterns to RAM. It reads them from, from RAM. And what it's looking for are those kind of errors that ECC would catch. And you would see those, you primarily see those in defective RAM. Every stick of RAM that I've ever had that was bad came to me bad from from the shop. But there's also, I guess it's also possible that RAM would fail over time. Um, so, you know, you could periodically do this, but all you do with Memtest is you fire it up, it writes patterns to RAM, it reads it from RAM, it, it takes a while to run, and you, I usually do at least three passes, but if you can do three passes without any errors, then you should feel pretty confident in the quality of the RAM that you've put in your machine. And then after that, I usually do a series of CPU burn-in tests to kind of put the CPU under load and really stress everything out because that's where you're going to find your defective hardware or your, you know, if you're buying secondhand hardware, you might find out the reason that this is on the, on the secondhand market. All it does is it makes the CPU work really hard and it works hard. It generates a lot of heat and, you know, I usually kind of run a few tests. I get meaner and nastier as it goes along. Mostly I'm just trying to see if it, if it survives, if five minutes later, I'm back at a blinking prompt, everything's worked just great. And then after you pass, pass the five minute test, you get like a 15 minute test. And after, after the 15 minute test, maybe get an hour long test. And then maybe after the hour long test, maybe a, a four hour one. But by that point, I think you're getting, you're getting pretty mean and nasty. You're putting the server, you're put, you're putting the hardware through stuff that you're probably not going to put it through at your house. If it was an enterprise environment, maybe, you know, a different set of criteria of what exactly is mean enough and nasty enough. But I would think for those 
for my uses at least, I've never pegged a CPU for more than four hours doing something. Yeah, because that is just really, really mean. <laughs> and the last thing actually I'd really like to talk to you about actually is um, I'm a fellow coffee lover. And one of, one of the things, the blogs that you post that is about the, you're experimenting with, what is it, nitrogenated cold brew? What brought this on? And yeah, would you mind explaining kind of the story behind it? Well, I, I joined a makerspace here in the area and one of, one of their members is a guy who does homebrew beer. He's got, we've got a homebrew program with every quarter we meet and we brew beer. And I, I too like beer and I got, I got into it and I built, I mean, I built a whole kegerator. I've got, you know, taps of beer on, on tap. Because of that, I wanted to be able to do nitrogenated beers a lot like Guinness. You know, Guinness, most beers are carbonated. They, they inject CO2 in them and that's the, that's the gas that's in the beer. But in Guinness, they use, they use nitrogen and that, that's an entirely different experience. CO2 tends to be a little acidic and it, and bitter and nitrogen is not. And I decided that I, you know, in the event that we ever brewed a beer like a Guinness, I wanted to be able to serve it under pressure from nitrogen. And my buddy Pat said that, you know, people do cold brew coffee and serve it nitrogenated the same way. And the very first time I started loading beers up, I didn't have anything to put in that nitrogenated tap. I had I had one tap that was unused waiting for a beer. And he said, you know, we should we should buy a whole bunch of coffee and cold brew it and then serve it serve it under pressure from the nitrogen and see how it and see how it is. And it turned out really fantastic. Um you know, under the high pressure you you get a head on the on the coffee that's a lot like the head on a beer. It's a I mean it's almost like the crema in an in an espresso or a latte. And it's a it's a really cool mouthfeel. And then as you know, cold brew coffee is less bitter than, you know, your regular hot coffee because the heat brings out some of that some of that bitterness out of coffee. So it it's real smooth, it's cold. It works great here in Texas because the summers are unbearably hot. You know, when you leave the house and it's already 80 degrees outside, you know, you don't maybe want to take a hot coffee with you into work. You take a, a cold coffee instead. It is uh, is really nice. Yeah, I can imagine that is the last thing you want in that kind of weather. Yeah, yeah. I know people who say that hot coffee cools you off, and I think those people are absolutely insane. Oh, man. Well, yeah, thank you again so much, Brian, for coming on the show. We definitely have to do this again if, you, if you're if you up for it, because uh, it's just super interesting kind of looking into this different world and uh, the exploration and stuff hardware-wise and all these different projects you've been working on. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad that I got to share it with you guys. Awesome. Well, audience, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at 3devsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number 3, Devs and a Maybe.